This episode is brought to you by Element, spelled L-M-N-T. What is Element? It's a delicious, sugar-free, electrolyte drink mix. I tried this recently after hearing about it on another podcast, and since then, I've stocked up on boxes and boxes of this and usually use it one to two times per day. Element is a great alternative to other commercial recovery and performance drinks. As a coach or an athlete, you will not find a better product that focuses on the essential electrolytes your body needs during competition. Element has become a staple in my own training and something we are excited to offer our coaches and student athletes as well. Element is used by military special forces teams, Team USA Weightlifting, at least five NFL teams, and more than half the NBA. You can try it risk-free. If you don't like it, Element will give you your money back, no questions asked. They have extremely low return rates. Element came up with a very special offer for you as a listener to this podcast. For a limited time, you can claim a free Element sample pack. You only cover the cost of shipping. For U.S. customers, this means that you can receive an eight-count sample pack for only $5. Simply go to drinkelement.com slash justinclimo. That's drinklmnt.com slash justinclimo to claim your free eight-count sample pack. Drinkelement.com slash justinclimo. The Context Podcast is proudly sponsored by Delta Wines and Brick and Mortar, our everyday go-to with sustainability built in. Delta Wines are vibrant yet balanced, made to be enjoyed on special occasions. Brick and Mortar was founded in 2011 and has worked to create the European wine drinkers, California wine. The wines are small lot, single vineyard sourced from Napa, Sonoma County, and Mendocino Ridge. In addition to tasting good, they also help you feel good with an eco-friendly packaging and environmental nonprofit donations with every purchase. Buy online at winesforchange.com. Also, use the code CONTACTS to support us and get a discount. The presentation is beautiful, the wines are great, and you'll be supporting Saving the Earth. What more do you need? Again, that's online at winesforchange.com, discount code, contacts at checkout. Hello, and welcome to Contacts, a podcast dedicated to bringing you practical ideas from coaches sharing what they have learned throughout their career. I want to open the door into my network of contacts whose innovative, reflective, and diverse coaching knowledge may offer ideas to enhance your experience. I'm your host, Justin Klimo. Welcome back to Contacts. We are joined today by Greg Klink, head basketball coach at Chico State, longtime friend and mentor. Coach, really excited to have you on. I appreciate you having me on. Thank you. Awesome. Well, let's dive in. So if you don't mind, take us through your background as a coach. How did you end up in coaching? What was the process for you landing your first job and any subsequent jobs? First of all, great to be here. Great to see you. I've been coaching 25, 26 years now, always from the time I was probably 13 or 14 years old, knew I wanted to coach basketball. I always, until I got to college, I always thought I wanted to be a high school coach. I went to junior college, played at junior college, came to Chico State, and really wanted to coach high school basketball. It was my dream to go back to Live Oak High School in Morgan Hill and teach physical education and coach basketball. And then when I got here and I started playing here at Chico State, I played for a guy named 
Puck Smith, and he just had a tremendous influence on me and gave me an opportunity to work as a graduate assistant. Mm -hmm. And I then decided I wanted to be a college coach. I graduated here, got my teaching credential, and then my master's degree here. So worked two years here as a graduate assistant. And then our mentor, Bob Williams, gave me a job at UC Davis. And that's where you and I met and worked together for a year back in the 96, 97. And then from there, I became a junior college head coach. I was 26 years old and got the job at Gavilan College, where I'm from and where I played before coming to Chico State. I was there nine months, probably learned more in that nine months than any other year in my coaching career. And then when Coach Williams won the national championship that year at UC Davis and then got the UC Santa Barbara job, I was lucky enough to be hired by him to go down as an assistant coach at UC Santa Barbara. I was there for two years before coming back to UC Davis as an assistant coach. And I was there for eight years. I coached with Brian Fogle for three years and Gary Stewart for five years at UC Davis and then became the head coach here at Chico State. And Ben, this is year 13 now. Time's flying, but it's year 13 at Chico State. Yeah, time is definitely flying as we go back and look at the timeline of the resume. And what I'm curious about, having worked for two, I'm going to call them legends of the game, especially on the West Coast in both Puck Smith and Bob Williams. And then being thrust into your first head coaching job, one would think you would have been very well prepared to do this. What did you realize almost immediately that you still needed to figure out when you took over at Gavlin? You talk about Puck Smith and Bob Williams. Those two guys have had such a tremendous, all the coaches, I've worked for four different head coaches. They've all had tremendous influence on me in in many different ways. Puck Smith and Bob Williams, you talk about two different styles, both equally effective. One of Puck Smith's old sayings was there's lots of different ways to skin a cat. Puck Smith and Bob Williams skinned the cat a a lot differently, but it was really equally effective. You talk about a rivalry back in the the days of UC Davis and Chico State. There were some games, some heated, big-time competitive games and the styles were very different. The structure of practice was very different. The way both of them coached in games was very different, but they both had such a tremendous impact on me. And so playing for Puck, working for Puck, and then coaching a year with Coach Williams and then getting that gavelin job at age 26, you would have thought I was ready, but there's nothing that really prepares you for something like that, especially when you go into a situation like a junior college job, a part-time paid junior college job with no assistant coach to help you with the day-to-day stuff, you learn how to get organized real quick. Mm -hmm. I learned more in that nine months I was there about myself, how to be organized. I had to do things, you know, it wasn't just coaching practice in the games. It was sweeping the floor every day before practice, pulling the bleachers out for games, making sure that you had a scorekeeper there, washing the uniforms after the games, washing practice gear every day, trying to scrape dollars together fundraising when you really don't know how to fundraise. So outside of coaching and recruiting, it was that day-to-day stuff. I had an assistant coach. It was an English professor that would come over and help me with practice, but everything, you had to do everything. And it was a great learning experience. It really taught me how to be organized and how to get stuff done. And it's almost like that experience was a crash course in 
all of the things that we take for granted when we are working for others and we have our niche of what we're responsible for and all of a sudden it's oh no coach you also have all of this that you got to figure out well and it teaches you how to be organized and it teaches you how to get things done when i left chico state and went to work with you under coach williams in 96 it was a whole new world for me i'd been at chico state in puck smith's program either as a player or a coach for five years and i really didn't know anything else at that point and so to see something completely different and and i felt like i did a good job that year but it was more hey greg do this and i'd get it done Mm -hmm. do this and i'd get it done then i went that nine months at gavelin and then i worked for coach williams again at uc santa barbara and i could tell i was a whole different level of assistant coach. I not only got done what was asked of me, but I knew how to initiate. I knew how to figure things out and take initiative and get things done. Not only what was asked of me, you see something that needs help or to be addressed and you find a way to do it as opposed to just doing what you're told. Right. And I think that's something that coach Williams did a great job at is really giving you an opportunity to get, let's call it the minimum done But if you wanted to grow and you really wanted to get better, there was always an opportunity to bring things to the table and go above and beyond what you were being asked to do. Oh, for sure. He's been one of the greatest mentors, still is in my life. He came to one of our practices and talked to our team last year. He's someone I still call when I'm wrestling with a decision that needs to be made or a situation that I need to bounce somebody off of. He's one of the first guys I call, but he was just a tremendous basketball coach and a tremendous influence on me. And I would not be here today in this seat without the help of a lot of people. And he's one of the main ones. Yeah. So let's jump ahead. You are at Gavilan nine months later, coach gets a Santa Barbara job, asks you to come down, you go, you stay there for a couple of years, you come back to Davis, you work for Fogs, you work for coach Stewart, and then you get the opportunity to be a head coach again Mm -hmm. at Chico. So now you've got eight year, 10 years of more experience as an assistant, and you get that opportunity to sit in the big chair again. Same question. What did you realize, even after all that extra experience that you still needed to figure out? It's all about as an assistant, you think you have all the answers a lot of times. When I've worked for four different head coaches and I've learned a tremendous amount from each one of them. I talked about Coach Smith. I talked about Coach Williams. I learned a ton working for Brian Fogel for three years. One of the best in-game coaches that I've ever been around. Learned a lot uh, from him about recruiting. Gary Stewart is probably the best recruiter as a head coach. A guy was a relentless recruiter. He didn't put it off on his assistants. He did it. I learned a ton from him. So I took bits and pieces from all these different guys and tried to apply it to when I felt like I could get my shot at a head coaching position. But you think you, you think you know more than you really do. And when you get in this situation, it's really about the decisions that are put on your plate. As an assistant coach, you are involved in a lot of the decisions, but they don't fall on you. When it's come time to discipline a guy or make a decision on recruiting a guy or who you're going to play, what you're going to run, how you're going to handle a situation, how you're going to fundraise, how you're going to deal with your athletic director, all those things, those day-to-day decisions fall on your lap. And that's the difference between being an assistant coach and a head coach. But I was fortunate enough to work under four different guys that really prepared me for that. And so I felt like I did a pretty good job. Learned a lot. I feel like I'm at a point now where I'm still learning, but I know what I'm doing. The first three, four years on the job here 
we did a great job, the staff. And I think what we accomplished in those four years shows that we knew what we were doing, but I'm not sure we thought we knew what we were doing. You know what I mean? It was a trial by air situation a lot of times. And I think we made more good decisions than bad ones, but we made a lot of bad decisions and figured it out and tried not to make them twice. I'm curious, based on your description of being an assistant where you think you have all the answers, but really you're just a recommending body versus being the head coach where you are now a decision maker, digesting the recommendations you're getting from your team and having to apply those. How would you advise assistants who are looking to grow? You got a great mentorship from the four different people you got to work for, but often on that journey, there's a feeling of not being taken seriously by the head coach or not feeling that you have a voice or how do you fit in to help? What would you give or invite people in that situation to consider? Yeah, I I think it's different in every situation. I think that I was lucky in that I worked for guys that I really believed in. And so it was easy for me. And obviously I didn't agree with everything. Everybody's got bosses. I don't know that you 100% agree with your boss all the time. I know the assistants that work under me don't agree with me all the time, but they believe in me. And I was able to work for people that I believe in. So it was easy. My advice would be is to try and do a great job in terms of being loyal, working hard, going the extra mile. You got to really know the personality of the person you work for. And that's in any profession. It's not just coaching. You need to know what that person's about, what drives them, what are their strengths. When they're in their realm and they're doing something that's a strength, you get out of their way. When they have a weakness, how do you help make up for their weakness? What do you do behind the scenes to try and help them be better in doing it in the right way? You got to really learn who you're working for. You got to be able to mesh with their personalities. Sometimes you know, got to know when to speak up, but other times you got to know when to keep your mouth shut and get out of the way sometimes. It's a give and take and it's a feel. And I really think that it becomes easier when you work for somebody that you really believe in and that is mm-hmm. taking it the right direction. But you got to learn and you got to be better. And if the opportunity's not working out for you, then you got to find another opportunity and, and try and find somebody else and, and try in all these places that you work for and all these people that you work for, try and pick out the good so that when you get your opportunity, you can apply those things. Yeah, and I would add how you receive feedback and participate in that loop is really important because you can feel like I'm being criticized or I'm not getting any attaboys when there's an opportunity in everything that's given to you for personal growth, if you're willing to see it. Yep. And I think that's huge. How you take constructive criticism. Are you coachable? Are you coachable as a player, but are you coachable as an assistant coach? And are you coachable as a head coach? I work for an outstanding athletic director. There are times when I need to be coached on certain things and If I don't listen to that's not going to make me better, especially early on in my career, I'd walk into my athletic director's office and I'd sit down and we'd have a discussion about things and it would be more me listening because she'd been in the business for so long. And what can I take from this meeting to make me better as an assistant coach, you're going to be criticized at times. And how do you take that? You and I both know coach Williams really well. He is an outstanding leader but he's a demanding leader. And there'd be times when he would get on you and be demanding. And your first reaction might be you get defensive, but then you walk away from it and you go, he's right. 
You know, I can remember time climo. And I don't know if you remember this story or not. One of our jobs was shoot arounds. I don't know whose fault, probably my fault, maybe your fault, but we forgot to get the balls out for the other team shoot around. And Coach Williams brought us aside and lit us up. And at first you're like, what, what? Then, but then you realize, you know what? He's absolutely right. The other teams needs basketballs at shoot around and it's our fault and we need to take it and make sure that we don't ever do it again. You got to take constructive criticism and you got to take an ass chewing sometimes and you got to use it to make you better and not let your ego get involved. Yeah, no, I love that. And I definitely remember a handful (laughs) of those moments that quite frankly, without them, I wouldn't be where I'm sitting yes. because I wouldn't, learn, I wouldn't have learned what it meant to grow. You just think right. you're doing okay. And it's no, you know what? I'm here to help you. I care enough about you to tell you that you're wrong. Yep. And here's how you could do this differently. So I love you bringing that into the equation. I want to shift gears here for a second. After all this time, right? You've worked for four different head coaches. You've been a head coach yourself twice. You've been there for 13 years at Chico. What's the best thing you do in your program that you feel that you've implemented that maybe you've brought with you, maybe it's new, but that you feel has the largest ripple effect on your culture? That's my answer is our culture. And people throw that word around a lot. Everybody talks about culture, but the culture of our program and the way we operate on a daily basis is the best thing we do. We recruit really good basketball players, but at our level, Division II, we're never going to recruit a perfect player. There's always going to be something deficient that we need to try and address to make them better. The best thing we do is we recruit great guys that are going to buy in to the culture of the program and try and make the culture of the program better. And this is something that if I was to say we've done from day one, and it's been myself and, and all the assistant coaches, I've been so lucky to have so many great assistant coaches over the, I'm not able to keep them long because they are so good and they end up going out and getting jobs at higher levels or at their head coaching jobs. But Gus Arginal and I, from day one, he was with me for three years. We had a vision. I think you need to have a vision. You talk about cultural, what does that look like? We have a vision for how we want to play. What does it look like when we're on the basketball floor? We have a vision for how we want to practice. We have a vision for how we travel, how we treat people, how we dress, how we talk to each other, how we communicate. I have a vision in my head right now of what a booster event looks like. When I take my team to a booster event, we're not standing around each other and congregating. Our guys are dressed nice. They're personable. They're peppered throughout the event. That's in my head. I can see that. So we had a vision and then we did a great job of holding the guys in those first few years accountable for that vision. Mm -hmm. And here's an example. This vision is something that I can only see. So I have to communicate that to Gus. Gus has to help me communicate that to the players. If you walk into our practice right now, when we get back to playing, if you were walking into our practice at 1245 for a one o'clock practice, as soon as the guys walk in, they have a routine they do, right? They have a ball handling routine. They have a shooting routine. There's no BS to what we do 15, 20 minutes before practice. It's it's on task. I don't have to say anything about it anymore. In that first year, that was something I had to coach every single day. I'd walk into the gym and you have two or three guys doing what you expect them to do. And then three or four that aren't. And so we had to coach that. I had to hold the assistant coaches accountable for the vision. 
I had to hold the players accountable for the vision. So the best thing that we've done is we've created this culture in the system within how we operate. Mm -hmm. And now it rolls, yep. right? Our players police it. Very rarely do I walk into the gym and see somebody off task. But if I do, oftentimes before I even get to them, there's a player that said, no, that's not how we do it here. This is what we do. And they get them on task. So we've done a good job of building a culture and how we operate. And it's to me, second to none. I would agree with that. Having watched you guys and, and had a player be part of it, hundred uh, percent agree with what you've been able to create there. It leaves me curious though, in regards to the early work of defining it, setting standards, holding them accountable to those standards. And that just becomes how things work mm -hmm. as a Chico State Wildcat. Are there other specific, more tangible things that you do? I'll throw this out there from a team building standpoint or other ways in which you fight for that culture every day. That's not just, hey, we don't do things that way. That are other things that maybe you've started to add that enhance it and take it to the next level. I think the communication is the biggest part. I think how we talk to the guys, the, the number of individual meetings that I have with guys, the number of team meetings that we have that are high level team meetings. These are orchestrated meetings where we have an agenda and a plan. A tangible example is our weight room, how we operate in a weight room. Now we were fortunate enough a year and a half ago to hire a full-time strength coach. Mm -hmm. So the way the weight room looks now is a little bit different in terms of how we operate because he's running a lot of those workouts. But for the first 11 years of my coaching career here, we as a coaching staff ran weight workouts. Mm -hmm. And not only did we run them, we lifted with them. And we taught the guys how to lift. We really use the weight room as a way to team build and build self-esteem and build team chemistry. And it was such a beautiful thing. You'd see a guy come in as a freshman who needed to put on weight, needed to put on strength. And we'd have an upperclassman take him under his wing and teach him how to lift, teach him how to do a power clean, teach him how to do a deadlift, teach him how to do a front squat. And five years later, four years later, that young one is now mentoring the incoming freshman. And so that's a tangible example of what we do. And a lot of weight rooms you walk into and it's an ego thing and it's, I can lift more than you. We don't talk about the number of pounds that you lift. It's about getting stronger and building each other up, not just physically, but mentally too. I think the takeaway from that for me is, okay, there's a specific aspect of the weight room, but it's more you've created this culture of your veterans modeling along with the coaches participating and partnering in whatever activity you're doing. So it is a collective goal you're trying to reach versus some dictatorial approach to, hey, this is how we're going to get this done. For sure. And we do that with practice too. The way we design, if you walked into one of our practice, you're never going to see anybody walk. That's an expectation, something that we talk about on a daily basis. You know, how we operate. I talked about booster events. We do a lot of uh, fundraising here. One of the unique things about Chico State is that people care about athletics here. Mm -hmm. We get crowds at our games and people will see you in town. We talk a lot about how we operate in town. Our guys could be sitting in a restaurant on a Sunday after a Saturday game and they're going to get recognized. They might not know who's looking at them, but there are people that were at that game the night before in the gym that watched them play. So how we operate, how we treat people, how we communicate in public, how we treat 
waiters, you know, and all things that we talk about on a daily basis in terms of how we operate and how our, our culture functions. Yeah, that's great. So you said earlier, you've known you've wanted to be a basketball coach since you were 13 or 14 years old. So from that point, you probably had pretty tight tunnel vision on what you were doing and where your energy was going in regards to athletics, which leaves me curious. What have you been able to glean, borrow, steal, adopt from other coaches, programs, organizations that may or may not be basketball related? Yeah, that's a great question. I think we all steal a lot from everybody in terms of basketball and X's and O's. I'll watch things. The way Duke University huddles mm -hmm. is an impressive deal to me. That's something that we've stolen. That's something that we repeat and, and mimic. I went two years ago to recruit at Fresno City and I watched them warm up. I was there 30 minutes early and I came out and I watched them warm up and I've always been my on my assistants. I've turned the warm-ups over to my assistants and I've said, you guys make sure that we warm up, make sure that we're ready to go in terms of being, you know, in a sweat and warmed up and, and focused and all that. And I was with my assistant and I kept elbowing him. I go, you see this? This is what I want our deal to look like. So that's another example of, of something that we steal. We've been fortunate enough five different times to go play an exhibition game at the University of Arizona. You walk into that thing and it's a whole nother level in terms of how they operate with 12 managers, six assistant coaches on the floor, the organization of how they, they warm up pregame before you come out and, and start doing layup. We steal things like that, how they utilize their managers. There's been little things that we were fortunate enough to take our manager, our one manager with us the last trip. And I said, Ricky, look what's going on here and, and look at the ones that are doing something and look at the ones that are sitting there on their sub. But what can we steal from these guys that they're doing in terms of uh, preparation for a game here? Uh, so there's lots of different things. I steal a lot of X's and O things. I don't think anything I do in terms of basketball stuff is original, but how we dress, how we operate, we steal a lot of different things that aren't basketball related that have made us better. So let me ask this as a follow-up then. You have a son that's a wrestler. You have, as a Division II school, a pretty small athletic department where I would imagine you and the other head coaches or even assistants of other sports are pretty close and see each other on a regular basis. Is there anything you've been able to notice in a, a discipline that's not basketball that, whoa, how do we do that? Or I'm stealing that and putting that in because it's going to take us to the next level. I, I think the other part of it, the thing that I've really tried to watch is how people actually coach, right? That's been a big one. You talk about my son's wrestling coach. My son goes to Chico High School, he wrestles for a guy named Keith Rollins, who is one of the best wrestling coaches in America, he runs a phenomenal program. So just going to the workouts and watching how he communicates with the wrestlers, just seeing the respect that he has in his approach. He's not a yeller and screamer. He's very deliberate with what he wants, but he explains it and just to watch the kids operate. I remember as an assistant coach at UC Davis going and watching football practice, mm -hmm. right? Watching Coach Biggs coach at football, watching Mark Johnston, an assistant coach, uh, I was a defensive coach, just watching how he communicated and how he taught and the type of intensity that he had going to clinics. And when I go to a basketball clinic, I don't take a lot of X's and O's away. It's more watching how somebody presents the topic and the command they have and saying, yeah, I, I like what that person 
said, but I really liked how they said it. And I liked the command they had. And then maybe others, not so much. So you learn what to do, what not to do, but you learn how to teach. And I really think that's something that's important is watching great teachers, not just in basketball, but in all sports. You go to back to school night, you can tell with your kids' teachers who's on it and who's a great teacher and who might need help. But just watching people in all different facets that are high level in what they do and trying to take little nuggets of, of things that they do and try and apply it to what you do. Yeah, I was able to go to a point guard college session with my oldest when she was a seventh grader. And I got to observe Dwes Henderson, who's the associate head women's coach at Wash U St. Louis. And the patience he had mm-hmm. to be able to just stand and, and wait until he got the behavior expected was something that I've taken away and been able to apply to your point of, it's not necessarily about what they're sharing, but how they're doing it. And I think that's really insightful share from your end. How would you say, how would you characterize if you could, the way in which your approach has changed over your career? I've become more patient and I'm still not a patient person. I think my assistant coaches that have worked with me over the years would laugh if they heard me say that I've become more patient, but I think that I've slowed down a little bit in terms of how I make decisions. I haven't slowed down in terms of my intensity level or my approach or how I coach on the floor, how I run practice, the energy, all that. I've slowed down and here's an example. My first probably three, four years, everything was an emergency, right? Every decision was an emergency. You'd have someone mess up in the dorms, have a a behavior problem in the dorms. That was an emergency. The day would stop and we'd deal with it. Somebody was late to class. That was an emergency. The day would stop. And all these little things, all these decisions that we've talked about that you have to make on a daily basis the world would stop and we'd make a decision and we'd try and fix it and move on to the next one where now it's a slower approach, right? Mm -hmm. Somebody has an issue in the dorms. It's okay. Let's figure out what that issue was. And in the meantime, let's really think about how we want to deal with that. And the decision doesn't need to be made today and it might not need to be made tomorrow. We have some time here. Let's figure this out. You don't want to go to class. Okay. You can sit here. I'm not going to blow up at you anymore. And I'm not going to yell at you. And I'm not going to try and make you feel bad. You're going to sit in the office for a couple of days and study while the rest of us are practicing. But we take things slower now. When I say we, I do. Decisions are made and they're made with every bit of consideration as they used to, but the process has slowed down a little bit. And I think it's maybe easier to be around too. I think my assistants find it easier to be around me. I think my players are a little more laxed outside of basketball, outside of the gym because of that now. But those first few years and some of those guys that I coached in those first few years, it was go time and it was a hundred percent go all the time and don't slow down until you go home where now I have the ability to slow down a little bit while I'm at work. Yeah, I think as we mature, I've learned to call that figuring out how to respond versus react. Yes, 100%. I think what Rich Shaywitz said when we talked about this was there's a difference between what's urgent and what's important. And being able to navigate that is a huge part of growth. 
as individuals and coaches. And, and yeah. you just brought it right back to there. And, and I'm going to follow up with something that relates to the story you told earlier about us forgetting to put the balls out at shoot around. But is there a favorite failure you have that you've leaned on throughout your coaching career? I don't know that I have any one failure that I lean on. I think I've had a lot of failures throughout my career and my life that I think back to. There's little, if your life or your coaching career was a scrapbook, you don't remember them all. But if I turn back 11 years and looked at that picture in that scrapbook, there are certain things that come to mind. Maybe how I coached a player, not in the right way. Maybe I messed up here. Maybe I didn't make the right decision here. So there's things in my mind that when new situations arise and I have to deal with, things pop into my head. Oh yeah, I did it that way that time. It's probably better to do it this way this time. And I think it goes back to the last thing we talked about, my ability to slow down and think as opposed to reacting has helped me with that too. But you talk about basketball decisions. There's a lot of games that I replay in my head, especially end of the game decisions where I think back to, oh yeah, that was a good one. Mm -hmm. That worked out or damn, I didn't do that right. I, I remember we had a, this has been probably five years ago, but end of the game timeout where I thought we had one timeout left. We didn't. I told a kid to foul. We end up losing the game at the free throw line. That's one that totally changed the way we approached end of game timeouts from there on out. So that was something that I learned from and it has never happened again. And it will never happen again because of the way we operate because of that decision. But there's a lot of those type of decisions. Like what if I would have done that differently yep. that pop into my head and a lot of ones that have nothing to do with basketball, how we deal with players, how we recruit, you know, I've, I've changed the way I've recruited in terms of how I operate on campus visits and how I push or don't push for decisions based on different things that, that have happened in the past or decisions or successes or failures that we've dealt with that kind of drive how you operate now too. Yeah. And I think the important thing that I take away from that is the failures are there as learning opportunities and it's your choice whether you want to grow or not. It doesn't have to be this specific incident, but this series of trips and falls and it almost speaks to sports in general you turn the ball over you can sit there and boohoo or put your palms up or you can run back and play defense so i think that's the lesson the takeaway that people want to be able to dig into there i heard this question on a podcast called coaching for leaders with dave stahoviak and it really sat with me not even in regards to coaching just in general in life but i want to apply it to coaching what would you say you have most recently changed your mind on from a coaching standpoint? I used to believe this, but after consideration and circumstance, I'm now in this camp. I don't know that I have anything that I've really changed my mind on. I think I've changed my approach to a lot of different things. Uh, I talked about recruiting. I've changed my approach over the years to how we recruit. I've definitely become a, a much better teacher. I've always felt like I could really coach and teach on the floor, but I've changed my approach over the years, become a better offensive teacher over the years. But in terms of anything that I've really changed, I don't know that I've changed a lot. I think that if you looked at our program in year 13, 
and compared it to year one, there wouldn't be a lot of difference in terms of how we do things and how we operate. The difference would be the level of our team is a lot different. The way we have streamlined recruiting has really changed. The way that we maybe structure practice uh, has changed a little bit. The way we've really teach offense has really changed throughout the years. But I don't think that my core principles or my beliefs, or I can't pinpoint and say I've, I've done a 180 on that. I think that my core beliefs and my foundation and, and what I believe in how you should play this game, how you should respect this game, how you should coach this game, I would say it has changed very little mm-hmm. over the course of my career here. Nice. And if nothing else, it's been validated through the experiences that you've been able to have there. And I'll use the word success loosely because it's defined in different ways, but you have a program and a model that has generated college graduates, contributing members of society, everything you've set out to do there. So it's not so much, what do I have to change as much? What modifications can we make to make this more efficient as we go along? Well, and you use the word validation. I think that probably the most gratifying thing for me is that over the course of 13 years, I have been validated that the way we do things is the right way. Might not be the only way. It isn't the only way, but it is the right way. Mm -hmm. And I say that because not only of the number of games that we've won or the NCAA tournaments, the CCA championships, the West region championships, all that is great. And that's the fun stuff. And that's the gravy, but that validates that the way we're recruiting and the way we're coaching is the right way. We've had every single person, but three in our program walk out of here with a college degree that's finished their eligibility here. That's something that validates that the way we attack our academics and the guys that we recruit, the type of guys that we recruit, the ones that value educate, because I'm not offering anybody a scholarship here if I don't think that you value getting a college degree. So who we're recruiting, the type of person we're recruiting, and then the academic support that we give them Mm -hmm. validates that we're doing things the right way. The people in this town that absolutely love Chico State basketball from the kids that come to our games and our camps to the boosters that buy season tickets and Mm -hmm. donate their money validates that they love being around our guys. We have great guys that treat those people really well. So those are examples of things over the course of the years. And you talked about streamlining. We don't do a lot of things different in year 13 than we did in year one, but we've streamlined them. We've gotten better in certain areas. The beliefs haven't changed and the foundation hasn't changed, but we've gotten a lot better at doing what we do. And obviously, because we came up together, I've kept a close eye on that and watched what you've done and taken what I can from that and tried to send you players as often as possible for those reasons. What, if you were starting over today, what would you do differently and what piece of advice would you give your younger self? And historically, most of my guests have said they wouldn't do anything differently. It was part of the process. So feel free to focus on the, what piece of advice would you give yourself in order to help younger Greg Clink get to the guy you are right now, where you're making the impact that you're able to have. I don't think I would do much differently. And I agree with those other people that say that. And I talked about the type of intensity that I had in those first few years and how I've learned from that. 
But if I was going back again, I wouldn't change it. I wouldn't change it because I learned a lot about myself from it, but I wouldn't change it because I feel like that's what this program needed at that time. And even though I made a lot of mistakes because of that intensity level and that aggression that we had walking into practice every day, we needed that. We needed a culture change and it needed that type of intensity. In terms of the advice I give, I don't know if a lot of coaches would admit this, but advice that I would give my younger self would be to try and enjoy it more. There are a lot of things. I love my job. I love coaching and I love leading. There are a lot of things that I love about my job. I love basketball practice. I love it. I love walking into the gym every day. I love working with the guys. I love the relationships that I get to build with our student athletes, with the coaches that I work with. There are parts of recruiting that I love. I love the evaluation part of recruiting. Mm -hmm. There are certain things about community outreach and fundraising. That's not all fun, but there are things about that. Thing, the thing, and this is going to make me catch you by surprise, the thing that I least like about my job is the games. I become very introverted before a game. I become very anxious. There's a, a ton of pressure that I put on myself. I don't feel a lot of outwardly pressure. I mean, I know people in this town want us to win and there's an expectation that we win. And I feel that a little bit, but the pressure comes from me wanting to be great and wanting our program and our players to be great. And you talk about my younger self, this is advice I'm trying to give myself right now you know, <laughs> to try is to try and enjoy that part of the job more because I really don't like it. I laugh with my assistant coach. I, I say, if, if I could coach basketball and never have to coach a game, this would be a dream job. You get that, but there's a lot of people that don't understand that. And I think that there's a lot of coaches that are not wired like me that love the games, yeah. but I think there's a lot that feel this way and that's why I talk about it. I wish a lot of other coaches would talk more about this because it would help me. And so that's why I talk about it. Some people would say, well, that's crazy that you feel that pressure and that anxiety. It's just basketball. It's just basketball to you. It's right. my life. Yep. Right? It's my life. And this is how I not only make a living and feed my family, but I don't want to be Joe Schmo run of the mill coach. I want to win. Right. I want to be successful. Right. And I know that a majority of my job, the success is not based on winning. It's about mentoring and leading yep. and graduating guys and making sure they leave here better equipped than when they came here. Yep. I get that. And I do that well, but I want to win. And I don't want to just win one more game than I lose. Yep. I want to win championships. And I want these guys to leave here with an experience that they were treated well, they got a great education and they won at a high level. And so there's some pressure there, pressure that I put on myself and the program, which makes it sometimes not as enjoyable yep. as it could be if I didn't care. Yeah, no, you're not the first person to say that. And I think it's very interesting because many of the guests have said, try to enjoy the moment because we get caught up and forget to do that. And one of the things that I've learned in the last couple of years where I'm the varsity boys basketball coach, I coach the middle school girls team at the same time. And my approach in those games, I found myself being very different in the level of intensity and expectation. And once I realized, no, I can translate this middle school girls coach over to the, the, my varsity boys games, my level of enjoyment went yeah. through the roof because now that turnover as absurd as it was, 
I'm not berating this young kid. It's like, I'm like laughing about it going, hey, we got to do a better job. Well, and that's quite a, a, an accomplishment to be able to do that. That's something that I wish I could do. I coached my son's AAU team a few years ago. And I honestly, I wanted him to win because I wanted him to, to feel good and have some success, but it, it wasn't in it for that. It wasn't about winning and losing. And so I was able to coach the game and I still coached him hard, yeah. but it, at the end of the day, it didn't matter to me. When the buzzer went off, whether we won or lost, I didn't care. But I wish I could, and I, I don't wish that I didn't care. I wish that I could approach my job and the games more like that. And I think often people get the false realization that the guys at division one have more pressure than the guys at division two, mm -hmm. or the guys at, you know, division two have more pressure than junior college or the high school coach. It's about what you want to get out of it. And it's about the pressure that you put on yourself and is the coach at the big time division one school have more pressure. He might have more pressure in terms of losing his job mm -hmm. than I do. But there's no more pressure that he puts on himself that I put on myself in terms of wanting to be successful and wanting to win. There, you know, you put pressure on yourself to be successful. That yeah. doesn't change because of the level that you're at. It, it's about you and what you want to accomplish as an individual and what you want your program to accomplish that creates that pressure. Absolutely. I agree with you 100%. And great way to frame what you said, the advice I'd give my younger self, I try to keep giving this to myself every day because I often think as we get older, sometimes we don't feel like we, we can receive advice from ourselves. And no, you can't. So I'm going to throw you a curveball, coach, because you're doing a hell of a job. And this is something I've never asked anyone on the podcast, but found it the other day and it, it, it sat with me. So I'll be curious to see what your answer is. What one small act of kindness from someone contributed to your success that you will never forget. Oh man, an act of kindness. I don't know. That's a tough one. An act of kindness. I've had, I've talked a lot about the mentors that I've had that have reached out. I don't know. I don't know. That's not to say that I don't have any. I've had a lot of players that have come back that I think you talked about the validating part, the validation. When you coach a guy and you're hard on them and you're demanding of them and you sometimes realize that they don't appreciate everything that the program's doing for them, when they come back and speak to the team, when they come back and tell me how much their experience has meant to them, that's something that goes a long way for me. And that really validates that what we're doing with these guys means something. Demario Sims Mm -hmm. uh, is a guy that comes to mind in terms of that. He has come back and spoke to our team so many times. And he tells me this a lot, but he really credits this program with saving his life. And he tells mm -hmm. our guys that. Mm -hmm. And that's a powerful thing when you have an alumni, one of the greatest players that ever played here, come back and tell the guys that are on your team how much this program's meant to them. But that's something that he's given back to the program. Jake Lovey Solo, right? He's done the same thing. That guy has done more for building the culture of this program than maybe any one single player that I've ever coached. Mm -hmm. He comes back, he speaks to the team, he gives back. So I think if I was to try and find an answer to that question, and it's a difficult question, mm -hmm. it really goes back to the players that I've coached here 
and things that they've given back to the program in terms of mentoring our guys, helping our, our current guys when they're trying to find jobs. So, you know, those, I don't know if that totally answers your question, but those are things that come to mind in terms of kindness and people giving back to the program that's been good to them. Yeah, there's no right answer. And like I said, you're the first one I've thrown that question at. And, and, and the way I interpret it is, as we go throughout life and we try to have an impact on the world, a positive impact on the world, we are constantly trying to do things for others and to serve. And often we don't necessarily analyze or think about where do we get that from? How did that get embedded in us? What did we experience that makes us want to pay it forward, so to speak? Right. And so I love your answer. It's perfect. Those guys coming back speaks to the culture and the tribe and the family unit you've created there. And knowing, because I've watched you officiate one of your players' weddings, at least one of your players' yeah. weddings, that it's so tight that they're happy to do those small kindnesses that for you probably seem like a big ask and they're driving four hours to come do it. Right. So I think it's a great answer. It's a great way to end the episode. And I, I really just appreciate you taking the time and, and coming and spending it with me this evening. Oh, it's a pleasure, man. I feel like you and I, we don't connect enough, but we had such a great time working together back in 96. It seems like an eternity ago, but I think the world of you and I'm so happy for all the success you've had. And it's just been a tremendous experience being able to do this with you. Awesome. I hope to see you soon. And the other side of COVID, get you guys to come down to God's country because you at least have roots here and we can hang out and you can see the water. That sounds good. Look forward to it, buddy. Thank you. This podcast was also brought to you by teachhoops.com. As coaches, our inboxes will get flooded with noise on how to make your program better. Teachhoops.com will get you focused on what needs to get done. One thing you've heard from these podcasts is no matter the experience, you got to keep pushing yourself to be better. Coach Steve Collins will help you direct that noise. He is there to help you. He has the credentials as a coach, and he's never turned down a Teach Hoops member. Sign up for a plan at teachhoops.com and mention us at checkout. This site is here simply to help you be better. Take advantage and see you on the court. Remember, go to teachhoops.com. Hi, this is Natasha McGill, recreational tennis player at the club at Pasadena and labor and delivery nurse. Ever feeling tired after a long day at work or after tough practice? Try Element, that's L-M-N-T, for the energy you're missing in your life. It's sugar-free and filled with electrolytes your body needs for energizing power. Try it risk-free, money-back guarantee with our special offer at drinkelement, that's L-M-N-T, dot com slash Justin Climo. You only pay the shipping. What's there to lose? Power up! Thanks for listening. If you found this valuable, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and give contacts and this week's guest a shout out on social media to show your support.